The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. It is seven minutes after 10 a.m. this morning. You are listening to the Thursday edition of The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for Kathy Mutlatana this morning. In this hour, I want us to zone in on the mental health crises of South Africa, but the related suicide crises of South Africa, right? Um, it's The numbers are staggering, but I want us, in a short while, to speak about how should we in, internalize and interpret these numbers. 13,774 South Africans committed suicide in the last year. That's 38 people every single day. 38 people today will attempt suicide successfully. But the question is, how should we look at that? What, what, what does that mean to our lives, right? What does that mean to how we relate to the illness of mental health and the effect that it has um, on lives, communities, and families? But I want to speak about help-seeking behavior as well. How do we seek help? Why should we seek help? And what should we do when we seek help? The problem is a lot of people know that there's a problem, right? Many don't admit they have it, but many people know that they may have a problem. The question is, what do I do after that? Many people don't know what to do. Many people don't know where to go. But many people also fear the stigma of seeking help, right? In That's what we say, right? Um, I want us to demystify that a lot. But I want, to, I want to take us into the therapy room. What happens when you actually decide to seek help and you start speaking to a psychologist? What is the nature of the conversation? Where do you start? It's an, it's a, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll talk about my first therapy session in a little while. It's incredibly awkward. But once you get over the awkwardness of it all, uh, it actually becomes... Um, just like in every other relationship you have. It's just now that you have a relationship with a professional. Um, And joining me to have this conversation are two very brilliant guests, people who have spent uh, quite a a, a great amount of time thinking about the problem, but also, um, you know, spending time in therapy themselves um, and how they relate to that. Um, Joined by Paula Quincy, uh, who is an interpersonal relationship expert. We're going to be speaking about uh, that aspect of the problem and I'm also joined by a good friend of mine broadcaster and author and currently contributor for Times Live an analyst at Times Live uh, the host of uh, Eusebius on Times Live as well as the host of uh, In the Ring with Eusebius MacKaiser which if ever you listen to uh, both of those are great um, I'll start with you Eusebius good morning Morning, Oliver. Thanks so much for having me. I can't remember the last time I was actually at the SABC. And uh, good morning to Paula and to the listeners, and thanks for framing an important conversation. Uh, it's lovely having you here. This is the first time I'm actually interviewing you. I thought about that this morning. It's quite, it's quite strange because <laughs> we do a lot of things together on podcasting yeah. platforms and on radio. Um, and usually I've been the one who's been officially the, the what interviewer. What does it feel like being in a radio studio after, what, two years of not? You know, there's magic. I mean, I was listening to your engagement here on the way here with the listeners on the open line, and it's great fun. You know, the thrill of the extemporaneous conversations never go away. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to ask, what does it feel being the interviewee? It's nice because I don't have the burden to make sure it's entertaining (laughs) and it's flowing. So I can just be me while you have that burden of worrying about the numbers. Yeah. When was the first time (laughs) you went into therapy? It was when I was at Oxford as a student, and I had gone through a bunch of experiences and 
we thought that it might be useful to see a therapist. I went to a therapist in North Oxford in England. So who's we? Um, while I was on a road scholarship, an international road scholarship, and I had spoken to the warden who pastorally looks after the well-being ah, okay. uh, or takes care to monitor the well-being of the scholars. And um, I had spoken to him about my difficulties while being there as a student. Mm. I mean, there are many winters of discontent if you live in England. <laughs> and um, and so I tried out therapy, and it was not a very productive experience. My therapist fell asleep. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. No way. Yes. So that was the first time. We'll come back to the other experiences. But when I came back to South Africa, I first worked at McKinsey for a year. And after that, I then started my media career. McKinsey, one of the best things they did for me as part of their general coaching support, which they're brilliant at, is that they connected me with a guy called Mark. Um, I don't have permission to say his surname. And Mark has been my therapist, my second, my last, and my permanent therapist. Absolutely brilliant. He did not fall asleep. <laughs> and during the course of the hour, I'll tell you what happens in therapy and why Mark yeah. did work for me. Yeah. Um, Paula, yourself, first time in therapy, what, 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 how did you get there? I got there through a string of failed relationships behind me and thinking there's something here, you know, why, why can't I form healthy attachment with another person? particularly from a romantic per, you know, perspective. And relationships are supposed to be our, our safe place, our place of support, a space of nurturing, someone that we can turn to and lean into, and I just couldn't. And so, so taking myself off to therapy and realizing how important our upbringing is mm -hmm. and how it influences and shapes who we become and our perspective in, world, in the world and how we forge relationships with other people. Mm. That's actually really, really important, our upbringing and it, it, the impact it has on how we lead out the rest of our lives, specifically related to therapy um, and some of the mental health and just bad habits and behaviors that we pick up. Um, I've got quite a lot of that, right? I, my biggest fear in relationships is often, um, you know, uh, just being impatient. Um, because that's how I saw my dad behave with my mom mm. in so many ways. My dad was also incredibly abusive to my mom. And that's had an impact in how I enter and exist in relationships um, and the fears I have about relationships. Um, you see, because I want to, you, you have a view on suicide because in, in many people suffer from and live with mental uh, illness and a handful of them attempt suicide and an even smaller handful of them um attempted successfully mm. and oftentimes and you know it's it's you, you had this reflection when patrick shy passed away mm. um at the at as, as a result of suicide you had this reflection on how society should respond to suicide part yeah. of i think the problem is that we view mental health illness as an illness outside of every other illness we don't view it as the same way we view cancer right mm. uh with we, we we never <laughs> When, when someone dies from cancer, we don't say, oh, what could we have done hmm. uh, to prevent them from dying from cancer? But we say that when mm -hmm. someone dies from yeah. suicide. How should we view suicide? And yeah. is, is the view that we currently have of suicide a limiting one? Hmm. Excellent questions, Oliver. So just firstly, a preface. I'm not a psychiatrist nor a psychologist. My entry into this conversation is as an ordinary human being who has being a client or a patient in the therapeutic context. And I want to share, especially with men, but with everyone, why therapy can and is productive. And so that is why I'm a guest this hour. 
on suicide, I do have some views, um, philosophically, I guess, as a commentator. And related to what you said, I want to say a couple of points. Firstly, language is really important. Um, For example, in the intro, um, you first said when you rattled over the stats, a lot of people committed suicide. It's important that we, and I'm not doing this for political correctness, talk about dying by suicide suicide rather than committing suicide. The idea that people actively wake up and opt out of flourishing is not correct, which leads me to the second point. People commit suicide, as we would say, um, for many, many reasons. It could be due to an ongoing enduring mental illness like anxiety disorders, for example. It could be that they are off psychiatric medication and maybe they have, for example, um, an episodic experience of um, bipolar and um, they go through a difficult patch biochemically. And sometimes people will die by suicide because of an event, not because of enduring mental illness. For example, deep instantaneous shame that you failed matric, which is why outside of Port Elizabeth, that bridge is so well known over December for people throwing themselves over. And these are teenagers who can't face the shame of not passing. They're not mentally ill. They are dying by suicide because of an immediate event preceding the attempted suicide. My view is that because of cultural and religious and other social factors, we often think that someone who had died by suicide were weak or selfish or both. More often than not, it probably was a release from pain. Mm. And therefore, we need to be deeply empathetic and move away from language that is judgmental and that moralizes why someone had died by suicide. Mm. Uh, when you say we need to be empathetic, what, is, what does that look like? Um, so your cousin dies by suicide tomorrow morning. You walk in on his body. Perhaps he hung himself. Um what does empathy look like flowing from that? It's a very good question, and there are two dimensions to the empathy. The first is self-related empathy. I don't think, although it is natural and completely understandable, and this is a reason to go to therapy, by the way, yeah. that you should go, oh, my gosh, what could I have done? Maybe I didn't look out for the science. Maybe I should have looked out for the red flags. Maybe I should have encouraged Paula to actually seek help. Mm. So there's the self-flagellation. So you need to be kind towards yourself as a partner, as a family, as a colleague, and not enter the game of what could I have done? Secondly, is to be empathetic towards the person that has passed on. And it is tempting, again, not unreasonably, to think, even if you don't say, thoughts such as, he still had children that he had to look after. How could he? How could he just take the easy route? Mm. You know, he took the easy route out. You do not know the inner emotional landscape of someone who had died by suicide. And when you don't have access to the inner emotional landscape, by definition, then you're not in a position to fall to form a full-fledged view of what their life was like. So you take Ricky recently who died by suicide. Eusebius might look like he is the life of the party. If you had read the Sunday Times last week, you would have seen the story of poor Pops, for example, who was talking about suicidality, how even when he is at a gig on New Year's Eve, you know, people will stop him um, and say, can I take a picture? And he smiles, but he's on his way back to the hotel room. Secretly inside of him, he is thinking suicidal thoughts. Yeah. 
And so we, we never have complete access to each other's inner emotional landscape. Eusebius might strike you, I don't know, hopefully as calm and thoughtful and eloquent while you're listening this hour. But for all you know, he he is actually going through an existential crisis. I, I like the Rikirik example, and it's interesting that you mentioned in Pop Pops. Um, there's also a shame that is attached to that, right? That So I'll tell you a, a very brief story. The last time I saw Rikirik, I was with him, Pop Pops, and John Flismus. <laughs> we were having a conversation about mental health. I think mm. Um, mm. one or other alcohol brand, I think Castle Light, hosted a conversation, and uh, we were all there, and Rikirik had, had, had um, you know, told us about every instance he attempted suicide. But something he mentioned um, that that stuck with me and that I, that I want to ask you about, something I've experienced myself, is the shame of surviving suicide. Mm. How do you look your family in the eyes after you've attempted mm. suicide and you survive? The relationship dynamic changes altogether. Mm. Your children become KG, your wife become KG, um, and it puts a strain on the relationship. And, and, and often you've, your family sort of forces you into seeking help um, in ways that you may not want to. Uh, Paula, what do we what do we do after that? Uh, someone at, at, attempts suicide and survives. How do we keep the relationship intact, the family intact? Yeah, and I, and I think you know, going back to what you were saying. So, we, first of all, we need to realize that mental health is health, and it is critical to our daily well-being and functioning and operating. So, when it comes to those relationships. You know, a lot, of, <clears throat> a lot of people jump into rescue mode, fix mode, um, and, and we're under 24-hour suicide watch because we're yeah. scared that this person is going to attempt it again because they've, they've done it before. So we try and get in, and it's human nature. We want to fix, we want to rescue, we want to save. But it's allowing this person to find a safe space to lean into to be able to process and go through what they are going through, that inner landscape that you was talking about, mm. you know. And often when we try and push someone into that space, they resist because maybe they are resentful about it. Maybe they're not ready yet. Maybe they are overwhelmed. They don't know how to deal with it. So they're going through a whole lot of stuff. So the first thing is just support. And that empathy that you were talking about is we don't have to jump into fix-it mode, but how do we hold that space for that person that they feel safe enough to say, maybe I do need help, and then well, take what, the what, next what, steps? What do we do in the instance where your reluctance to get help has an impact on my well-being, right? Um, wife tells husband, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy. Your mental health instability puts a strain on relationship. Husband says, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Wife runs out of patience, right? Wife says, then, you know, I'm I'm checking out of this. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of relationships, I'm speculating about a lot of relationships may end in, in, in such instances. Um, when you say hold space, locate it for me in that, in that scenario. So holding space could look like a whole range of different things. First of all, important, taking care of self and not going into that blaming yourself. Also understanding that is not your responsibility, to fix that other person. They have to take responsibility for where they're at and take action. And so that's the first thing. Then educate yourself on how do I be there? How do I support? What are some of the things that I can do? How do I um, talk to my partner about what I'm feeling in terms of the impact about, you know, what are my fears? Well, my fears are that potentially if you do attempt it again, I am going to lose you. 
and I don't want to lose you because I do love you and I am there for you and I want to mm-hmm. be with you. You know, I'm by your side. Show the support. Ask that person, how do you need me to be there for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, we often assume if I do this, if I do that, if I do that, I'm showing my support and my love. But we very seldom stop to ask, how do you need me to be there for you? Right. That's really, really important. Sibius, um, take me to, into the therapy room. What happens there? <laughs> what happens in therapy stays in therapy. <laughs> I can tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> so there's a couple of things about therapy. Well, it was awkward for you because I think your therapist used to listen to you on radio. Yeah, and his partner even more so than him. Um, so, so a couple of things about therapy from a patient or client perspective, right? So the first thing is... Um, you got to shop around sometimes. I'm lucky that I struck gold the second time round. I didn't get gold in Oxford. I did here in Johannesburg. Mark and I just work. Um, for example, you could work with Mark. My partner, Nduduza, wouldn't be able to, um, I don't think. And it's like finding a personal trainer, especially right. for the men who are into fitness. A personal trainer might work for me, might not work for you. It's not a diss on you the personal trainer, if Oliver doesn't gel with you, nor does it mean that you are useless in terms of health-seeking behavior if you don't like my personal trainer, because the relational element is unique to the two persons who are with each other. Yeah, so I the like first, your personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is, you know, you've got to be mindful of that, you know. So, for example, I've just referred a friend of mine to my uh, therapist, and um, although she kind of likes him, um, because I speak well of him, I can already infer from one or two comments that it's not going to work out for them. So it might take two or three therapists before you find one where it actually works for you. Mark and I just click. What happens in therapy depends on the technologies that a particular therapist use. For me, I think about therapy in functional terms. There are many ways to skin a cat. Someone can use classical psychology method. Someone else might use insights from D. Martini. Someone else might come across an academic psychologist that influenced their approach to therapy, and they bring those frameworks, those tools in their toolkit to their therapeutic so context. So the practice differs. So the practices differ. differ. Um, and, and that's important. So let me make it practical. When Mark and I started on this journey, I went to him because I had panic attacks and I wanted the panic attacks to stop because the panic attacks obviously disrupt the flow of your day and make you less productive and not flourishing as a person. That was about, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago now. Um, Within a year, I stopped having panic attacks. I haven't had a panic attack since. And the reason why it worked for me personally, which may differ for another patient, is that Mark does two things in his approach once I'm in therapy. He, he is nerdish and intellectual, and that appeals to me. And so we will talk about the theory of the techniques that he's about to use first. And so, for example, he drew on techniques that do not believe that emotions like melancholy or sadness are inherently bad, that they can serve a function in your life. He does not believe that you should go back to your childhood and in the therapeutic context cry and shout at your dad for what he did when you were six years old. <laughs> and now you're going to be living happily ever after and yeah. write a self-help book that will sell 50,000 copies. He believes that experiences like anxiety are intrinsic to the human experience and you can't eliminate them. 
It doesn't mean you must romanticize anxiety, but you need to understand what role anxiety plays in a productive life. And for me, that was a light bulb moment in his therapeutic relationship with me because I then started going from the theory to doing things where I now let go of being Eusebius the analyst, Eusebius the author, Eusebius the master's philosophy student. And I just allowed myself to go through the processes. So we put the theory aside. Now I'm doing things. And it's very important, especially when you're a control freak or cerebral, to just go through the processes. So I would do things like, for example, one exercise, write an imaginary letter, actual letter, or you can voice it, to anxiety. And you personify anxiety and you thank it for the, the, the job that it's done. So I would do things like, for example, say, dear anxiety, thank you for helping me to having write Ubuntu in my bathroom within three months. If I wasn't anxious about the possibility of dying before 40, I would never have written so quickly. But because of you, I managed to get the book out very quickly. And it's true. Anxiety spur me to be productive. You often talk about my productivity in terms of media output when it comes to writing. Part of it is healthy. Part of it is driven by anxiety. So I don't want anxiety to go away. If anxiety goes away, Eusebius will be less productive. Cut a long story short, Oliver. Little technologies like that made the power of anxiety disappear. Does it mean that I will never have an onset of anxiety? No. My distinct breakthrough moment is when I was in the sauna at the Virgin Active in Santon, and several months later, anxiety was coming on. Ordinarily, that would lead to me feeling like, oh my God, I'm getting a heart attack, must get out of here, must call the GP. But now I realized that I could invite anxiety into my psycho- psychological space, and it suddenly didn't have the power. Now, I can't tell you from a brain perspective or a psychological mechanism perspective, the causal connection between his tools and the onset of anxiety not leading to an actual panic attack. But they just stopped. Yeah, And so you've got to be prepared to submit to the processes and to shop around. That's that's. I want to come back to 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 some the last thing you said there um, around inviting anxiety into your psychological space um, and stripping it away from its power. Um, it is really about the power that some of the illnesses, not just mental illnesses, physical illnesses, have on us too. Uh, that we may need to talk about at a mm. psychological, physiological level. Give us a call: o double one seven one four two thousand and six. If you have a comment or question, want to share your story on this conversation, we're also on WhatsApp. You can send us a WhatsApp voice note. But if you do send a voice note, let it be short. Otherwise, give us a call. The WhatsApp voice note line is zero six one four one zero four. One zero seven. I'm taking a tweet at Oliver underscore speaking. You see, because there's a mark on the line. I hope it's not your, <laughs> your therapist. <laughs> it's ten thirty. Let's take your news headlines. SAFM. Let's talk. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. It is exactly half past 10 this morning and we're in conversation about mental health and the suicide crisis in South Africa. I want to turn the conversation in a slightly different direction um, when it comes to um, help seeking. You see, because before we went to the break, spoke about, um, spoke about, you know, that it may not be that the first or second therapist that you see will be one that works for you. You must be willing to shop around a little bit. That's quite insightful because if if therapy fails the first time around, we just sort of conclude, well, this doesn't work, and then we just move on. Um, but there seems to be a sociological difference in help-seeking behavior between men and women, Paula. Why are women 
more likely to seek help than men. And I'm asking that specifically as a positive question and not a negative mm. question. That's to say, I'm not asking yet, why do men not seek help? I'm mm. asking, why do women, mm. why are women more likely to seek help? So a lot of it's mm. got to do with the the legacy of our, of our upbringing and gender stereotyping. So, you know, women are taught to speak to your mother, speak to your sister, speak mm. to your besties, uh, go to therapy. You know, it's, it's, it's an accepted practice for us to do. But we've also got places we can lean into like book clubs. For, yeah. You know, you know. Um, so the, we have places we can lean into and speak into in our church groups and our, you know, the moms groups in the schools. Yeah. It's nature. Na- it's natural for us to be sort of in a in a community, you know, yeah. and that whole thing about takes a takes a village to raise a child. Traditionally, legacy based women would be in the village, so to speak, whether it's back in caveman days or current um, communities. Women are at the core of communities. Mm. Mm. That that is that's very very true. Mm. <laughs> um, do men have communities, Eusebius? Uh, I mean, I think Paul has just told us exactly what we need to replicate and so the first sort of negative masculinity trope that we need to get rid of is the idea that there's nothing we can learn from women in terms of how to live well as right. men uh, paula has just told us that we need to replicate what women do when we are not watching and what we need to do is to create safe spaces for ourselves we do have tribes but what we do inside them is not always healthy. We've got locker room conversations, mm-hmm. for example, but we normally use them as spaces where we are being hypermasculine instead of actually being spaces where I can cry, I can be vulnerable, I can tell you about my suicidality that I'm experiencing. So we do have community, but we don't necessarily have the practices inside those communities that allow us to lift to the surface the kind of vulnerabilities we've been speaking about. Why? Because we are raised to believe that boys don't cry. Mm. And I always say, you know from our private conversations and friendship, that if there's only one thing a father takes away from this conversation, it is both to role model and give psychic permission to your son to cry. Mm. I honestly believe it. If we cut through all the detail, as beautiful as this conversation is in the detail, We will make a massive difference to those suicide numbers that you're talking about if we do nothing else than to stop chanting, boys don't cry. Because it is human to cry and to be vulnerable. And we don't give, you say sociological, I'll put it psychically, we don't give psychic permission and we don't hold the psychic space for boys and men to have a range of emotion. If you are angry, you are the quintessential leader who's assertive right. and great and you, you speak in declarative sentences. But when you speak a little bit more softly and gently, you're suddenly seen as being a sissy, a moffy, mm. and that's what we need to change. That's absolutely, absolutely true. Give us a call, 011-714-2006. What's your reflection in this? Do you have a story to share with us? Uh, do you have a question? Do you have um, you know, just anything that comes to mind for you this hour? 011-714-2006. Let's go to the lines. Uh, Yvonne in Johannesburg, uh, good morning. Hi, um, uh, Oliver. Thank you very much for a very insightful program. And, and thank you very much for... That young man that's sitting there that has been the love of my life. (laughs) (laughs) The love of your life is no longer that young. (laughs) (laughs) Donkey? He has caused me me mental anguish 
over the years. I've been searching for him on the radio. I used to listen to him when he was on other stations. I called him and I said, you're just like my grandson. I love you so much. <laughs> Can I just give you a hug? Any, any subject that he takes, he just brings it to the fore. And serendipitously, I have a problem and you've solved it with all your insights. I can't even begin to start to tell you where you solved it. You solved it by sourcing other uh, therapies. Don't go to one therapist. You've told me that um, all other things. I've been waiting so long on the radio, and I, I didn't have a pin to pin them down. But I love you as always, and the radio needs you. And continue your good work. But please come back to radio. Where else are we hear you? Where will we hear you? Where will you have what you can give? Thank it's you. not on the radio. Uh, this is uh, an ordinary person, not a person that is that has got access to all the the, the, the expensive things. Radio is where you, your your mind you you let us share what was in your mind, and it is so beautiful. Thank, thank you. you, thank you for your thank you so much. Far too kind, Yvonne. Very very kind. Can I just um, say one thing about what Yvonne has said? Besides giving permission to boys and men to cry and to emote. The other thing that we don't do often, and again, Oliver, I don't want to make you cry on radio. It might be good for your ratings, though, <laughs> is that the other thing we don't do is to say, I love you. Mm. I was an adult before I first said to my dad, without awkwardness, I love yeah. you. And my dad says that to me. He's probably listening. And now we, we do it habitually. But we're so used to thinking only women are allowed and girls are allowed to emote that besides the quote-unquote delicate emotion, even the affirming emotional language, we don't do. So we should also learn to do what, yeah. what Yvonne has just said. So yeah. I sent my dad. I love that, you, Oliver. I, I sent my dad that text. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> I sent my dad that text after we had a conversation about why we don't tell our fathers that we love them. Um, so I sent him a text a few days later, and I said, "Our um, <laughs> And his response was, Yeah, Sien, who can it? He didn't say it back. <laughs> but I'll give him time. I'll it's give a him journey. time. Mark in Durban, good morning. Mark, good morning. Hi, I'm here, guys. How are you? I'm fantastic, Mark. Go ahead. I'm good. Guys, uh, you're my leader. Thank you. I'm, I'm the survivor of the suicide. Thanks to my... 10 year old who managed to walk in that house uh, on time. Hmm. And I, I, I and, and are you still there, guys? Yes, we're listening. And and on, on that note, for me, what, what, what hit me the most as a survivor, um, it's, it's a trauma that puts through because I had to go through the therapy and everything. Like you're saying, you need to chop and change the therapy to get the one, thanks to MJ18 Durban. But the, after I was okay and well, I had now to deal with my parents, the 75-year-old mother and dad, who are now traumatized if they can't get me on the phone for the next five hours. What mm. have I done? Mm. So now they're going through their own trauma now. I need to take them through the, that therapy process to, mm. to get them well and heal. So the, the aftermath of that decision is far bigger than that what you see but mm. when i went through the therapy i will agree with Vusi when he said the way we were raised and the way we for not crying i've always say the past five years i've seen my dad that i wish i've seen it when i was two years Ooh. you know a dad yeah. that will say boy you can do it boy well done i love you son you know <laughs> that dad mm. uh, he, but i've realized the man loved me but he wasn't emotionally showing it out until 
until he lost his only son that he had. And and and, and the therapy helped me go through this. Mm. And I'm 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 safe to say, if things go AWOL, I cry. Calm mm. down and be okay. And I make sure I tell my kids every day how much I love them. And my my four year old daughter doesn't drop the phone without telling me I love dad, I love oh, you dad, wow. and I tell her back. But the the point of this, Ed, because like you say in the Ed, I call you a morphy or softy or whatever they want to say. Hmm. Uh, the, the world is brutal. If we can start chanting the right words in the correct ways and be sympathetic to each other, uh, we, we we might go a long way. Hmm. It takes a big step and a risky decision to almost taking your life. Mm. For the entire surrounding around you to notice, hey, the life is more complex than being on Instagram and doing everything that we do out there. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Mark. I, I have one question for you. Um, you. You mentioned your parents going into panic mode when they can't get a hold of you on the phone for five or so hours. Have you found it to be burdensome that you have to constantly reassure them of your mental well-being? Mark? I'm here. Uh, did, did, were you able to hear my question? Yes, I did. I, I had your question very well. I'm here. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So for the first, I'm going to be honest, for the first years, I was trying, like my mom could call me as early as five and say, son, you know I love you. You're the only son I have. And I felt like, oh, God, what have I done to my parents? Oh, what what did I do? Look at these old people now. And I had to go through the therapy again. And I had to be emotionally sorted and mind to be sorted. No, 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 no. Your parents, are they just worried about you. And I had mm. to take them with me to the therapy. And they had to go through their process. Yes, when they went through for the first three sessions, I was feeling, oh, look at, I'm driving my dad 200 kilometers to attend my therapy. He shouldn't have been doing this. He's too old for this. Yeah. And what have I done to them? But he says one thing to me that changed my world. He said, boy, you're the only son I have. I love you. Oh, thank you so Never much for your call, Mark. Like about it. Yeah. Thank you so much and for your call, Mark. Really do appreciate it. Uh, what a what a beautiful call. Barbara in Cape Town, good morning. Eva and the listeners. Yes, Barbara, go ahead. What's in your mind? Okay, uh, only but on this issue of suicide, I have, um, like, he's now my boyfriend, man. Yeah. But um, basically, time he tried to commit suicide. So I'm not sure, like, does this mind, uh, let's say, a person tries to commit suicide, does it even come back again, or does it affect, like, the self-esteem, confidence, and whatever? Mm, mm. That's a very good question. That's a very, very good question. And I'm going to give... Yeah, I'm going to give Paula an opportunity to, 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 to respond to that question. Uh, thank you so much for your call, Barbara. Really, really do appreciate it. Let's take a quick break. On the other side, we continue the conversation. Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Quarter to 11, you're still listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for Kathy Mutlatan, and we're talking mental health and suicide. Before we went to that very short break, uh, Paula, we had a call from Barbara who, who spoke about a boyfriend having committed suicide and the aftermath of loss of self, con, uh, self-esteem, confidence, and she, she seemingly doesn't know how to exist in that space. Do you have a, do you have, what's your take on, on that? You know, when, when we experience a loss, especially someone that we've shared so much with, you know, in terms of our life, um, 
we're going to feel that void and we are going to feel lost in many different ways. We're going to feel a loss of uh, now simple things like trying to make a decision as a single person, you know, simple decisions like what colored tablecloth do I want to put on the table? Um, Going to places on your own as a single person, feeling like the outsider, like you don't fit in anymore because everyone else is couples or in relationships. Your self-confidence and your self-esteem definitely can take a knock Mm. when you're going through some kind of trauma. And this is where we were talking about earlier about self-care. What do you need to do to take care of yourself and 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 work through this? And and we all grieve in different ways, and the grieving process is a process in itself. There's no one size fits all. Everybody grieves in different ways. Mm. And they always say that the, the year of the firsts is the hardest. The first mm. birthday, the first Christmas, the first anniversary, the first Valentine's without this person in your life is there's this constant void and reminder that you're going to be feeling and experiencing and going through. And it's, you know, we often are our own worst critics. We come on, you need to pull yourself together. You need to get over this. You need to get on with life. And, and that's not true. It's okay to not be okay. <laughs> Was that Jesse J? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to not be okay. Um, Eusebius, uh, earlier on, you know, picking up from what, what, what Paula just said, earlier on you said one of the techniques that your therapist explored with you was to view feelings of melancholy and feelings of sadness not as necessarily bad feelings, as feelings that can be useful in all of that. Mm. Um, and, and, and I guess in your space, uh, you've allowed it to, to manifest as such. And you know, um, But does it ever get to a point where it's like, okay, I'm a bit too sad now or a bit too deep in a hole? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me speak to someone, right? Is yeah. there like a healthy amount of sadness? And, 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 it, and at what point, yeah. I guess I'm asking this to, to ask, at what point should you realize and admit to yourself that, okay, I, I might need help? So the particular facts about an individual case are important to pay attention to, but at a general level, the principle or the wisdom would be that if the feeling that you are inside of is getting in the way of you participating in those projects that are meaningful to you and that give meaning to your life, then you have a problem. Let's take a parallel that's adjacent to the issues we're talking about. Am I addicted to sex? Am I addicted to a substance like alcohol? One of the informal ways you can answer that for yourself is to ask yourself all the important things that give meaning to me this week. Attending my kids' baller, you know, performance as a little ballerina. Making an important business meeting that will be break, make or break for an investment that I need for my project as an entrepreneur that I forgo it because I desperately needed to go to a brothel. Did I miss a meeting at 11 o'clock right now and all that is on is the wireless listening to SAFM because actually I was drinking until 2 in the morning. Then you have a problem because it is disrupting the projects that give meaning to you. But if you're just having a little bit of like nostalgia and you're like, oh, I'm playing that number from the 70s, man. And it's just making me cry as I remember the one that got away. <laughs> That's okay, right? That's okay. And to answer you more directly, and I'm, I'm sorry that there isn't a clear formula, mm. 
err on the side, Oliver, I would say, as someone who's been in therapy and still is, I've been this year, err on the side of seeing therapy as preventive medicine, not just as reacting to suicidality. Mm. You don't only go to a nutritionist or to a personal trainer when you are morbidly obese. You go when you have and you'd like to have a flat stomach. In other words, you go there <laughs> yeah. because you want to prevent it. And the other myth about therapy is that you should go to therapy when you have a quote-unquote problem. You can also go to therapy regularly because you want a space that is different to the space with your BFF, different to your romantic space, the familial relationship space. And in that context, you will be able to assess with a therapist whether there's stuff that's sort of bubbling under yeah I, there's a, a certain type of um, psychosocial issues that that affect men in particular in ways that it may not affect women just because of the history we have patriarchally right um you're a you're a father you're a husband you're a man right um, you can't provide for your family you've hit economic hardship uh but your wife can and you start becoming you think of yourself as depressed because I can't provide for my family. Not because I am supposed to provide for my family, but I'm less of a man because I can't provide for my family. Is, is, is that a reason? Um, should you explore with yourself to reconsider that frame, that worldview, or is that a reason to go to therapy? So that, that you can discuss anything in therapy, right? So I'll give you, let me rattle off a couple of things that have come up in my therapy sessions that have nothing to do with the panic attacks that took me there. Panic attacks took me there, but I stayed on because Mark was useful from time to time. You might, for example, not be able to know how to deal with triggering tweets. You're a survivor of gender-based violence, rape as a child. You think you have, quote-unquote, dealt with it, but a video comes up and it makes you want to cry instantly. That's a reason to be in therapy. Maybe you didn't complete your undergraduate degree, and when you are in a room full of people who are degreed, you have imposter syndrome, and it really chips away at you, wondering whether you belong in that space, and mm. you are secretly very scared. That can be a, something you discuss. Or, Oliver, here's an example for us as black people. Maybe you are talking about first, the first person in your family to have a decent income, and now you have, quote-unquote, black tax, mm. and you feel enormous social burden related to having to look after those who are unemployed in your family. And that can be an incredible source of anxiety. The therapeutic context can be great for that. Some of those conversations you can have with yourself, some you can have with your diary, some you can have with your best friend. But there's a reason why, why therapists exist. They have pro pro professional methodologies that can also be of assistance if you are able to access them. Yeah. Absolutely. We continue to get to take your calls on 0117142006 on the other side of this. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. And we continue to take your calls. Aka in Butterworth. Good morning. Hi, good morning, guys. Um, not sure if you can hear me. You, you, are you in Butterworth? Where are you? Because you're calling from an international number. I'm actually I'm actually calling from in England, Southampton, but I just want to put butter with them in the, in the map. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Aka. What's on your mind this morning? 
Yeah, um, so um, I like that you guys really do host this kind of uh, discussions, you know, because um, there's a lot of men dying. And But <clears throat> the trouble for me with these kind of discussions is that they're almost um, very predictable in the sense that they're always almost centered around how men should should deal with suicidal, th- suicidal thoughts, you know, which is after the fact. So they, aren't, they rarely ever talk about um, the conditions that really put men into this kind of situation to begin with, you know. Um, so the environment that keeps on producing suicidal men, you know, and uh, there's conversations usually talk about um, how men should should talk, how men should have, um, and then we start blaming um, negative masculinity without mentioning positive masculinity. And also they talk about, they tend to talk about uh, patriarchy, you know, and how <clears throat> how patriarchy, well, actually, my, 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 uh, my, my thought on how these things really do come up is is patriarchy itself, you know, uh, in the sense that patriarchy is almost framed as um, as something that produces big winners for men, you know, and it's actually the reverse mm. because patriarchy, what it does is it produces little winners for men and big losers for men. But what happens is that in in our view of patriarchy, we take we look at these um, hyper successful guys and then we tend to portray them as, as representative of, of what men go through when like in, in a patriarchal society that expects men to be these providers you know that expects men to be these objects of success you know it, it, it never really talks about the vast majority of men that, that don't make it out there the vast majority of men that actually suffer pressures that that really are, are, are not um, like are undue you know uh, whether you're a brother whether you're a sister whether you're a husband whether you're a father you know these 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 pressures exist because of of the patriarchal um, demands. You know, and for me, I would I would really like that maybe some like next time we, we really just explore the environments that keep on producing mm. suicidal men. You know, mm. such that we have to discuss less on how men should deal with them. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I can really appreciate it. Is it in our best interest for mental wellness, Eusebius, to fight patriarchy as men? Uh, look. There's a fellow broadcaster. I'm mindful that the time is running out, so I'm going to keep this 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. The caller is right, but I want to disagree with him. He's right that there are structural factors in society we can put on trial, and we can do it the next time you invite me. For example, capitalism and the migrant labor system. There's a whole sociology in, in political economy that explain unhealthy masculinities, and we need to deal with that. However, there will be many men that listen silently this morning to Mark from KZN, to what Paula has said, to what you have shared about your dad, for whom this conversation makes a difference at the individual level. Mm. It is not a case of either we do structural analysis or we talk about the individual as an individual. We can and must do both. Bakosonki and Soweto, you've held on for quite a while. Um, if you can, in the next minute and a half, go ahead. Bakosonki? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, um, I just want to say that um, the power of dealing with my emotions uh, inspired me uh, f- uh, inspired me to stop three suicide attempts um, uh, that I tried uh, since 2005, and eradicated the um, um, eradicated the suicide thoughts that I used to have. Now, with that being said, I just want to ask a few questions um, to your guests and to, to the nation as well. As all that, uh, when we introspect the current state of our nation, would we say most people think that emotions can be contained? Secondly, do we have 
relevant knowledge about the origin of our emotions and our responsibility towards them regarding our lives. Thirdly, which feelings um, which feelings have the potential of overwhelming us? Mm-hmm. You, you're such also, a disciplined listener because I feel like you wrote those questions down. <laughs> but thank you so much for your call, Marcus Onke. We, we've run out of time. Paul, I want to give you the last uh, bite at this. One, maybe the labels that we use actually reinforces the stigma with therapy. So what if we didn't use the word therapy? What if we use the word like sounding board session? Because that's (laughs) what a therapist is. You go in, you sound off them, bounce off them, and they help you and they guide you and they give you insights. Secondly, as women, how can we be allies for our men? How can we create safe spaces for our men to speak up and speak out when they're feeling challenged and that it's okay for them? They don't always have to be big and tough and strong for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, UCBS. I'm going to give you. I'm going to be a little bit late for the news, but I want you to respond to this tweet. Uh, someone says here, mental illness and suicide mostly happens in heterosexual relationships. Pressures exerted by women on men. Pressures resulting in wanting to provide for your wife and kids. You're not in a heterosexual relationship. No, in fact, I'm a straight virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's a human being embedded in society can be susceptible to mental illness because it comes with a hurly-burly of life. Living is tough. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much to my guest. Uh, really, really do appreciate it. I hope you guys will come back for a continuation of this conversation because we there's so much more to explore and talk about. So many more calls that I wanted to take. Uh, Paula, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Eusebius, uh, thank you so much for making the time to come out here. Appreciate it. It's 11 o'clock. Let's take your news.